Now, Jesus said, it's for freedom that he set us free. And you know, when you first hear that statement, it's kind of a weird statement. Maybe it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, but we have to understand that what Christ is trying to communicate is that he didn't, he didn't set you free from one thing so you could run into another. He didn't set you free from one bondage so you could go look for another one. It's like the person who falls in the pool, is drowning, and then you pull, help them out of the pool, and they walk out in front of traffic, right? You know, Jesus never came to liberate us from one thing so we could just jump into another thing. But he said, for the sake of living free, I've set you free. For the sake of continuing, for the purpose of continuing in freedom, I set you free. So you don't have to, you don't have to go out of the, the pit and into the traffic, so to speak. And maybe that's a fairly simple illustration, but I think it, it, it helps us understand that Jesus wanted us to actually live as free people. And if you've, if you've had the chance to see what lack of freedom looks like, you guys that have been in the military know exactly what it looks like. Do you want anyone to live there? No. It's good to be where it's free. <laughs> it's good. And Christ created us for this. He created us for liberty. Adam and Eve were free in the garden originally. They were created for freedom. Mankind was created for freedom. We are created to live in an environment of freedom. But what does that look like? It's not anarchy. There's no freedom in anarchy. No freedom in, in a world where everybody just does what they want. In fact, that was what the Bible said was wrong with Israel before, you know, King David came and said, in the day of the judges, everybody did as he saw fit in his own eyes. That doesn't work. That's why I, we've been talking over the last couple of years about how important understanding the kingdom of God is and God's desire to have good government. And if you've been to a place like Haiti, you know what bad government looks like and what it does. And if you've lived in Canada and you might say, well, I don't like the government that's there now or whatever. It's not the point. We have we're talking about systemic issues things that go deep into the whole grain of society we've, we've lived with basically 150 years of pretty good government if you want to see what 150 years of no government or bad government looks like come with me to Haiti you know the reason I say that is because in that environment we're free we're some of the freest people in the world we get a passport allows us to travel anywhere Canadians are welcome almost anywhere in the world. We're extremely free people to be able to go about our own business and to be able to enjoy. But, but in order to appreciate that, in order to uh, access that, you've got to know how important it is. You've got to value it more than anything else. You've got to put a premium on your freedom. You've got to attach high value to your freedom. And in Christ, it's the same way. We have to learn the power of attaching high value to our freedom in Christ so that there's there's really nothing in our life that's more important than living in the liberty of Christ being free free to experience everything that God has for you how many want that I want to be a free man I want to be a free man I don't you know I want as the scripture says I want to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and then run the race with great confidence because I'm free Amen? And in that place of freedom, man, woo, life is good. Somebody say good. Amen. Well, that, uh, as we say, is for free. Thank you guys very much this morning for the ministry. Amazingly appreciated. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. All right, let me, uh, okay, got that part down. Now I've got to get this part down. Well, there it is, folks. Uh, not the cleanest picture, but this is after we made it up to the mountain. So I thought I'd throw a few pictures up tomorrow, today, I should say, and I'll do some more next week. If I, if I have some brain lapses today, uh, uh, this past week, I slept about an average of three hours a night. And uh, last night, my plane got in at midnight, and uh, Pastor Mark uh, McFall was there to pick me up. And uh, God bless him for that and drove me home. So I think, I think we got to sleep about 3.30 uh, last night, something like that. So um, I might be a little incoherent at times. Uh, if I fall asleep while I'm preaching, Sherry, just come up, slap me a little bit, wake me back up, and, uh, and away we'll go. 
So anyway, this is, this is the Land Cruiser. You'll notice that, uh, uh, maybe you can't see it in the picture, but there's been a few modifications he's had to make. Uh, there are black bars on, over his wheel well in the front and along the grill at the front of it. There's a big, what we used to call like a, a ram or a cow catcher, you know, on the front. He had to add that, and the roof racks on the top. Uh, he only had it a few weeks, and somebody rolled their motorcycle into the front and put a dent in the front corner and stuff. So he put those big bars in there to keep people from banging into the car at the front. And uh, he's uh, really put a lot, of, a lot of mileage on it. I was telling some people earlier this morning, though, we were, we were uh, driving all over some of the most ridiculous roads. And if I had told my wife before I went that we were going to be doing these roads at night, she wouldn't let me go. But uh, we traveled on mountain roads uh, in pitch black, not... And there was no full moon, no nothing. You couldn't see anything. And, uh, and we're just driving around. And, uh, and you know, we, uh, we're weaving through all these crazy roads and taking hours and hours to get places. And then uh, we got up on Friday morning and we had a flat tire. We drove, we, somehow we'd made it to where we are going, pulled into the hotel parking lot, parked the car, went out the next morning, and the tire's flat. So we had to change the flat. And we managed to find what looked to me the only drywall screw in, in, in a 400, you know, kilometers of roadway. I mean, they, they don't use drywall except in maybe in Port-au-Prince. And we found this on an old, uh, you know, road that was just the most ridiculous thing. We found a drywall screw. It was punctured right through the tire. It was a Phillips head on it. It looked like a drywall screw. And uh, anyway, so we, uh, we got the spare change. And then we started up that day up the mountain to where we'd went three years ago and got stuck. So anyway, <laughs> this is a, a picture of some of the road going up there. That's at about a 25, 30 degree incline uh, right there. And uh, so anyway, I don't have the video for it. I couldn't find on my phone exactly which one it was this morning. But um, <laughs> I do have this video and I'll, I'll play this for you this morning. So you can, uh... oh, sorry, why is it not playing? All right, I guess I won't play the video for you. But I can tell you this much. This is what happens, how many pictures you take of your leg. When, uh, when, when you're bouncing all over the place, this is how many pictures of your leg you take. So I didn't realize that until this morning. I got looking at my photos, and there's like, you know, 10 shots of my leg in a row because you're bouncing all over the place. So we got to the, to the part of the mountain where we had gotten stuck three years ago, and it took us over an hour to get up the thing. And uh, so Bennett said, I want you to, I want you to pass it right now, shoot some video so the people in, in Canada can see how well the, the, the Land Cruiser does. And, and so they'll understand why, why this was important to have the vehicle. So I said, okay. So I get the camera and I'm, I'm sideways like this to Bennett. And he starts up and we get about halfway up and it rained the night before. The rocks are slick and we're stuck and, we, and we're just spinning. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. We should be able to go up this thing, no problem. So we back down, and Bennett puts it in low, low, and then he just hits the throttle on the, the old diesel on that thing, just screaming, Run! we're bouncing everywhere, and finally we get up the top, and I said, man, I, I can't believe we almost got beat by that thing. And so we drove another maybe a half a kilometer, and then we got to another hill, and this one was the same incline, about, about 30, 35 degrees, and, and with mud too, and we got halfway up that, and we, we got stuck. I mean, it's just, we're spinning like crazy, and and I said, are you sure you're in four-wheel drive, Bennett? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I'm in four-wheel drive, right? And I said, okay. So he, he only backed down, come back up, back down, come, well, third time up. I'm leaning out the window. I'm looking at his front wheels. I said, Bennett, are you sure? I said, because your front wheels aren't even turning. He goes, yeah, Pastor, we're in front, we're four-wheel drive. And then I said, Bennett, I said, did you lock the hubs? Like, you have, you have to lock the hubs on this, right? And he goes, what? <laughs> so he gets out of the car. He bends down and looks at the wheels. Click, goes over the other side, click, gets back in. And I realized at that moment for two years he'd owned it and he's never actually had it in four-wheel drive. So <laughs> he's been going all over these roads in two-wheel drive. Once we put it in four-wheel drive, that incline, 30, mud, whatever, didn't matter. It was just like driving on flat pavement in, in Canada. Just, we just kept on going. It was unbelievable what we could actually do when it was in four-wheel drive. But he had this real kind of embarrassed look on his face. He's like, hmm. we, we never said a word about it after that. We just kept going. Uh, but anyway, we had just a, a, an awesome time. And uh, we just want to say thank you to everybody for uh, all your prayers. And uh, I went a whole week without uh, air conditioning or hot water. So, you know, uh, it's an interesting experience. Shared rooms with cockroaches and uh, all kinds of other stuff. Uh, lots of interesting things in Haiti. But I'll tell you, the, the Spirit of the Lord and 
His word and his grace are just amazing. And the things that God is doing, I'll talk more about that next week and, and uh, you know, prepare some more stuff. So, uh, you know, now that I'm in a good Wi-Fi environment and can swap files back and forth from my phone, I'll get that uh, done for next week. But anyway, uh, we've been doing a series here about uh, moving things to the next level. And, uh, and I wanted to continue on that. And while I was in Haiti... I was teaching much of what I taught at Desert Stream over the last uh, number of months about the nature of the church, the, the mission of the church, uh, the power of the church. And uh, while I was teaching, uh, the Lord gave me some understanding, something that I really wanted to present this morning. So I was like, really, Lord? You... So here I was on the airplane last night, typing away, you know, between Miami and, uh, and Toronto. And, uh, you know, because it was something I just felt I needed to share this morning. And, and really what I want to share this morning is, is a revelation that explains much of why, you know, Haiti, for example, is where it is today and much of why Canada is where it is today. And uh, I believe there has been in our, our culture an element which has been missing in many cultures in the world, including the Haitian culture. And I think it's desperately needed in Canada as we go forward, and we're in danger of losing it, uh, and, uh, and in Haiti or in any other nation in the world if we want to prosper and we want to fulfill the Lord's destiny for us as a people. And I, I believe this is an element uh, that is also at the core, the very core of kingdom. And uh, without it, you can't fulfill the mandate of the Lord to go to the nations if this is not something that is in your heart. And uh, we've been called to go and make disciples. And so we need this element I want to talk about this morning uh, in every successful enterprise, whether church or business or school, in order to be able to accomplish what the Lord wants. So last summer, uh, my wife and I went to uh, the East Coast for our vacation, and uh, we had an awesome time. We ate seafood every chance we got. Uh, I got my wife into eating mussels, which she had not really done before, and now she can help me put down a bucket of mussels as fast as anybody, and we lobster, and uh, i got to stop it here. Uh, I haven't eaten that guy. I've been eating goat for the last week, so, you know, goat and starved chickens. But anyway... Uh, so, so, so we went down there, and, and one of the places we went was a little sleepy little uh, vacation village called Bedeck. Anybody ever heard of Bedeck? The Maritimers know Bedeck. So we went to Bedeck, and, and I didn't know that when we were going to Bedeck. We just heard it was a, had a great a lobster supper in Bedeck. Go to lobster supper in Bedeck. We get there, and we discover the Alexander Graham Bell Museum. I, I didn't know, A, that Alexander Graham Bell had, had lived in Bedeck at all, and I didn't know that there was a museum. Well, my wife and I love museums. In particular, I love museums, but we both love history. She, she likes them, I love them. So I'm one of those people that would drive you crazy that I want to read every plaque as we go through. Uh, so it, what's that? Yeah, I'm a geek, Sherry says, and I, and I want to read every plaque. I want, to, I want to know everything about everything that there is to know but everything about this museum. And so we were in the Alexander Graham Bell Museum, and, uh, you know, it probably took us a lot longer to get through there than Sherry would have liked, but she found it fascinating as well, and there were a lot of really interesting things there. But, uh, uh, you know, he is known as the inventor of the telephone, but Bell also was uh, not just the inventor of the... Uh, telephone, but he held patents in, in optical communication, hydrofoil technology, avionics. Uh, he was racing against the, the rights to build the first airplane. Uh, the guy had patents in all kinds of stuff. And uh, so anyway, so then it brought up this in my thinking, this question, and this is what I wanted to ask this morning. Why did Alexander Graham Bell invent the telephone? Why did he invent the telephone? Communication. Yeah. Well, that's what you do with the telephone, but, but what was his underlying motivation? What was it that drove him to invent the telephone? I was surprised when I found this out myself, but anybody else? His daughter and his mother, I should say his wife and his mother, were both deaf. And Abraham's, uh, <laughs> Alexander Graham Bell, uh, his his passion was to, to help people who had problems speaking. That was his big, he was a, a phonetics major, and, his, and so was his dad, and they were guys who uh, 
really studied the formation of language and words and how sounds worked. And he was actually working on hearing aid devices and things like that when he stumbled upon the telephone. And, uh, and even though he thought the telephone was a great invention and he patented it and everything else, he even refused to have one in his own workshop because he, he thought it was an intrusion into everyday life. And, uh, but the reason he invented the telephone could be summed up really simply by uh, this one little statement. And it's this. He had a belief that there's got to be a better way. You know, he looked at his wife and he looked at his, his mother and he looked at people who suffered from, uh, you know, the, the debilitating problems of not being able to hear either completely or partially. And he thought to himself, you know, rather than sticking a, a big horn in the side of their head and holding it up so they could hear something, he thought to himself, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be something we can do to help these people. And it resulted in the telephone. Are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? The thing that drove him to invent the telephone was this conviction, this absolutely underwriting conviction in his life that, that there's got to be a better way. The reason he got involved in, in hydrofoil technology and the reason he got involved in avionics was the same thing. He, he wasn't necessarily in it to make money or anything like that. He just had this conviction in himself that there's got to be a better way of doing this thing than the way we're presently doing it. I remember walking along and seeing his hydrofoils and, and his thinking behind it was if we could raise the, uh, the craft out of the water as much as possible so that the resistance of the water is making as little contact with the, sh- uh, with the ship as possible, we could probably go way, way faster and that would enable us, to, uh, our military to deploy troops to do all kinds of things and he was convinced of this and so he was racing and racing uh, in his mind. How could we create this, this ship that would go faster over water? And he thought to himself, the thing that drove him was there's got to be a better way. And his potential for, uh, that he saw in air flight and everything else was all driven by that same underlying uh, 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 passion that there has to be a better way to do this than we're presently doing it right now. That, I'm going to tell you right now, is the drive behind almost every successful person, successful invention, uh, everything is that, is that realization that there's got to be a better way than we're doing it right now. It's driven us to do all kinds of things. Um, you know, how many people here this morning have a cell phone? Let me see your cell You got a cell phone? Sure. Pretty much everybody's got a cell phone. Even in Haiti, when I said, how many people have a cell phone? Three quarters of the hands go up, you know? Uh, and, and, you know, it's the same true with the cell phone. What, why did we have a cell phone? Well, it's because somebody thought to themselves, there's got to be a better way to take a trip from New York to, to Los Angeles, driving across the country and stay in touch with your family than having to pull over to every gas station and use a telephone, Right? They said, you know, it was got, so the guys from Motorola back in 19, what was it, 78 or something like that, created the first mobile phone. I mean, it was about this tall, about this wide, and weighed about four pounds. But they, they, they went out and they actually made a phone call and tapped into a network they'd created because they thought to themselves to be mobile and to be able to talk is an awesome thing and we've got to find a better way to be able to be mobile and to talk. This is what drives just about everything that we see around us is this sense in which there's got to be a better way. There has to be a better way. I want to, uh, uh, you to turn your Bibles to uh, Matthew, and this is chapter 22, starting at verse 34. If you, don't, if you want to just follow on the screen, you can as well. But if you want to turn your Bibles and highlight it in your own Bible, that's good too. So Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 34. And it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything hinges on those two simple commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Amazingly simple, isn't it? And so he said, this is, this is what it, it all hinges upon, is those two commands. He said, the greatest commandment, what is the 
the greatest commandment. Well, you've all heard this passage, I'm sure, many times. And, and really what this is, is was Jesus summarizing the Ten Commandments. If you read the Ten Commandments, there are specifics in the Ten Commandments about how to relate to God, and the rest of them are all about how to relate to one another, right? They're, they're kind of practical, hands-on advice about how to love God. Well, you love God by not having any other gods before you and recognizing that there's only one God, and that's Him, right? And, and then you love your neighbor by not cheating, stealing, etc., etc. This is essentially what the Ten Commandments are. And so Jesus summarized them all up uh, in, in those two statements. And he rooted them both in this thing called love. And uh, the Pharisees, I don't think, were really interested in knowing which was the greatest commandment. They were just looking for a way to trip Jesus up. They were just looking for a way to, to get him to say something, do something that they could discredit him. That they could say to the public, see, this guy is not legit. You shouldn't be listening to him. This guy is violating the scripture. This guy is doing something wrong. They're looking for an opportunity to discredit Jesus. I don't think they have any interest in really finding out if there's one law that's more important than any of the other laws. So they're just looking for an opportunity to discredit him. Maybe, you know, outwit him or whatever. Of course, you know this is pretty much impossible because, uh, you know, it's not like you're going to catch Jesus, you know, having this kind of a, a weak, unfocused moment, you know, where he's not, you know, up on his game. In fact, uh, in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, it says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Jesus knew what was in the Pharisees, Right? So the idea that they're going to be able to trip him up somehow is silly because he knows the motivation of the heart. He knew what they're actually trying to do, and so he could see right through it. So being fully aware of their intentions, then he asked that, uh, you know, when they said, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus uh, was able to come forward with the, the incredible answer that he did, the, probably the most awesome answer. Love your Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He said, that's the greatest commandment. That's the greatest commandment, right there. And uh, he basically said that love is the better way. There's got to be a better way. What's it rooted in? Love. And Jesus, I should say, Paul himself, the apostle, he called love in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. He called it the most, remember he says, now let me show you the most excellent way. And then he goes into 1 Corinthians 13 and starts talking about love, right? And uh, I always thought it was weird that, you know, chapter 12 ends with that verse. It probably, I think 13 should have started with that verse, but whoever threw the numbers in there, they, you know, they're not the ones that were inspired. It, it was the original text. You realize that, right? Uh, the Bible did not come with chapters and verses. Uh, uh, you know, the guys who translate it threw those in there to help you find stuff, right? That's, uh, so just so you don't, you don't think it was all broke down like that for you. So I always thought maybe verse 31 should have been chapter 13, verse 1. But that's all right. Uh, Paul said, now let me show you the most excellent way. And then he went on to talk about love. He went on to talk about love. Certainly love is the better way. It, if, if we want to know that there's got to be a better way, what is it? It's, it's going to be rooted in love. Every better way is going to be rooted in love. If we want to find a better way in just about anything, it's rooted in love. Better way of parenting, better way of, of helping society, better way of health care. What's it going to be? It's going to be rooted in love. And then he goes on to say, now, you've got to love the Lord your God. And then he gives us three, three ways in which we love, right? And I've always found this fascinating. He said, love the Lord with all your heart. With all your heart. The how do we love? All of our heart. In other words, with all of our affection. With all of our affection. I would, I, I would submit to you today that you cannot love without engaging the heart. It's pretty tough. I mean, even when it comes to food, I engage my heart. I love ice cream. My heart's in there. You know what I'm saying? I love steak. My heart is in there. It is, it is full in. Uh, you know, uh, I, but I can honestly say when it, when it comes to avocado, my heart's just not in it. Just not in it. Can't, can't do it. Don't like it. Uh, yuck, uh, looks like green vomit. It's terrible. 
I don't understand why anybody would eat that stuff. It's disgusting. And so I don't like it, right? And you may feel that way about some of the things I like. I don't know. But the point that I'm getting at is when we say we love something or we don't love something, it, it, it's an issue of the heart. It engages the heart. And, and, and Jesus said, you know, if you're going to love the Lord, you've you got to involve your heart. That's why I, I find it interesting when people come in and say, you know, I, I like the church and the, and, and the teaching and everything, but that singing thing... It's so too touchy-feely for me. Really? You love God? Oh, yeah, but, you know, we don't need to get emotional about it, do we? Really? Do we? You know, it's, it, I'd say to my wife, oh, I love you, dear, right? I love you. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and, and if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. And, and if I say that on my wedding day and leave it at that, is, is that good enough? No. My, my heart's got to be engaged in the journey every day. It's got to be something we affirm to one another all the time. It's got to be something that, that guides and, and is a part of our relationship. Now, we're going to have days when she looks over and she goes, you twit, you forgot to put the recycling note again last night, didn't you? You know, or something like that. But you're going to have those moments. But the reality is love engages the heart. You, you know, you're not going to be able to sustain a relationship without the heart being involved. Think about it for a minute. You can't have a, a, a long-term relationship without the heart being in, engaged. So Jesus was saying, if you're going to love the Lord, then your heart's got to be in it. Your heart's got to be engaged. And, you know, and for a lot of guys, maybe worship is a little bit intimidating sometimes because it's maybe not as easy for us to say that we are loving this man uh, as maybe it might be for a woman. But the reality is uh, we're all called to be affectionate towards our God. And, and, and God is looking for opportunity to get more uh, uh, close to our heart. And hear me, guys. God wants your heart, not just, well, you know, your work and not just your, you know, you know your, your work bees or all the rest of it. And all that's good. But he wants you to engage your heart. He wants to, to, to be able to sit down and just have a good hug fest with you. He just wants to come along and say, you know, Gary... Yeah, I love you, buddy. You know, yeah, just, same here, just get right in there and get some loving in, you know. You know, do that kind of thing. Uh, that's what God wants to do. And, and you know, and we need, to, we need to engage God that way. We need to let down those walls that society has built up around us, and especially as men, walls that we put up because we're, we're trained. I remember when I was a kid, you know, if I fell down, hurt myself, you know, or my feelings got hurt even, uh, you know, my dad would say, oh, suck it up. Anybody's dad ever tell them that? I got told that so many times, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Uh, I'm sure I told Ryan to suck it up a few times, but, uh, you know. But, yeah, what's that? Suck it, up, suck it up, buttercup. That was Sherry's line. She'd say, suck it up, buttercup. But, um, you know, and I've told this story before, but I, I'll never forget... Uh, Paul French that teaches over at the Christian high school, he has an older brother named Alan French that I was a few years older than Paul and I when we went to school, and Alan was always picking on me. He was about three years older than me, <clears throat> and I told my dad, you know, and he'd get me so upset on the school bus because we rode on the same bus in Napanee, and uh, my dad said, just punch him in the head. <laughs> just bop him one. I said, Dad, he's a lot bigger than me. He said, doesn't matter. He said, just bop him one. He'll leave you alone. Just give him a shot. And I was like, well, okay. So here I am. I'm in grade one. My dad's advice, yes, grade one, I may, I, I'm not making this up. He, Paul was in grade three or four. How many know in grade one, does grade three can be huge, right? So, but dad, my dad's advice was suck it up, right? You know, give him a shot in the head. So I'm, I'm on the bus, you know, the next day, and sure enough, Paul's in the seat in front of me, and he's turned around, and he's just going at me again and calling me all kinds of names. I don't remember what he was saying, but it was really hurting my self-esteem. And he was, you know, and then shoving at me and stuff, and so I hit him. But I picked up my steel lunchbox with the rivets around the corners, boom, and I just took him right in the head with it. And uh, I cut him open on his forehead. He's bleeding everywhere. He's screaming. The bus driver slams on the brakes. He comes back. He's like, what's wrong with you? And he's yelling at me. And, and I'm like, ah! I just start bawling again, you know. I got blood all over my nice lunchbox. It's just mayhem on the bus, right? So, <laughs> so anyway, we... 
we, we get home to my house, and my dad, the shift worker, he actually was home when it happened, and I thought, I am going to get killed by my dad. I am going to be destroyed by my dad. So uh, anyway, the bus driver slams on the brakes in front of our house, sees my dad there, and he grabs me by the scruff of the neck and runs me off the bus, and he says, your son hit a kid in the head with a lunch pail today. He's bleeding on the bus, and everything else. And my dad goes, all right, he goes, all right, I'll deal with it. And the bus driver says, well, you better deal with it. And, and uh, he gets on the bus and starts to drive away. And my dad just looks at me and goes, next time, use your fist. Let's go have supper. <laughs> that was it. What did I learn from my dad? Suck it up. And that a good smack in the head solves just about every problem that's up, you're up against. And that was the advice I got from my dad. That's how most of us guys are raised in that kind of an environment where we're taught that, that you know, being sensitive and, and in touch with your feelings and letting those things bother you is not the way you're supposed to respond. Instead, you're supposed to respond with a, a little bit of force, with a little bit of power, with a little bit of, you know, fight back in you. You know what I'm saying? But Jesus said, if you want to have a relationship, you've got to engage that heart. And there's no way you can have relationship by always wanting to fight back. You've got to have relationship by allowing God to get close, guys. You've got to allow him to get in there. You've got to allow him to, to speak and have his way. You have to give him that room to work in your life. And so you can't, you can't say, I love God, and not engage the heart. There's just no way. There's just no way. All right, then... He said, sorry, there you go. <laughs> all right, there we go. Uh, then he said, with all your soul, with all your soul, with all your soul. Now, I got thinking about what does that mean, with all of your soul? How do I love the Lord God with all my soul? Uh, I believe it's with the work of our hands. It means soul is that, you know, we're, we're, where we engage ourselves with the, the with who I am, my identity and stuff, and I, and I actually work out my salvation, as the Bible says, with fear and trembling. I, I work things out. I, I partner with people. I do stuff. I engage. I, I, you know, Jesus was calling us to love him that way, and that's why his second commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, we've got to, if we're going to love the Lord with all of our soul, it means getting our hands dirty. It means getting in there and doing uh, and not just, uh, you know, talking about it. And, uh, we're called to love the Lord in word and in deed, right? So we've got to be a people who are engaged in that uh, nature of relationship with God where we're serving and not just uh, anticipating uh, a great worship service. I think both are important. And uh, just as much as it's wonderful to come and to, you know, and when we tell people we got a conference and there's going to be awesome worship and all that kind of stuff, it's amazing how many people flock in. But, you know, when you say, oh, we're going to have a work bee, 12 names sign up, you know, uh, or when we need helpers and kids, you know, ministry, <sighs> not my calling, you know, and it's great if we can do all these things because of our calling. But, you know, uh, when you've got a church of 10,000, you can probably find enough people who are called to work with children to just do the children's ministry. But, you know, when, when a family's a little smaller, sometimes everybody's got to do something, whether you think it's your calling or not, right? We never have any problem finding people who want to be on the worship team, but finding people who want to do some of those get-your-hands-dirty type of ministries is not nearly as easy. And, uh, and yet we've got to understand, love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. You've got to be willing to get in there and do the service thing. You got to be willing to get your hands dirty. You got to be willing to do stuff. You got to be willing to, you know, be up to your elbows in baby poop. You know what I mean? Like you got to be willing to do some stuff. You got to be willing to engage that way. And, and that's really what Jesus, I think, was telling us. And uh, God wants our heart and He wants our hands. He wants us to be doing and serving and not just talking and loving and serving. So both are important. And, uh, and, you know, for us as pastors, this is a really important one because sometimes we get so engaged in the, in the communications ministries, right, of meeting with people and counseling people and preaching that, that it's easy to forget that sometimes you've got to roll your sleeves up too. And that's why I encourage all the staff when there's work bees and stuff, you should be here too. Come on in and get your hands dirty and get involved and do it. And, and it doesn't matter whether you're really skilled at it or not. You know, Rod will teach you how to do everything. Just, just come and he'll, he'll show you how to do it right? And, uh, but the reality is, you know, we encourage guys to do that. And I'll never forget one of the first 
work bees we did. We got this building. You know, uh, I had all, I just encouraged all these people to come. And so Mark Pierce showed up. And I don't think Mark Pierce had ever done a bit of contracting work of any type in his entire life. He was wearing white khaki pants, dress shoes, uh, a nice button-down shirt with a button-down collar. And, uh, and he showed up at the work bee. And, and he brought with him a hammer. The hammer was one of those little, about eight-ounce ones that you can get for a little kids, you know, with the wooden handle and the head's about this big. And that's what he showed up with. We're like, what? <laughs> What are you going to do with that, you know? And, uh, and he was like, you know, like, ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. So, so anyway, we, we built that whole fence out there on that work beat on the north side of the building, you know, where we put those slats in. We, got, we made a, a little two-by-four thing up about this long, and Mark was the guy who stood there and made the spacer between each board. He just, he stuck it in there, and he was, and man, he was just right in there, you know, doing it. But despite the fact that he'd never done those things before, he understood the importance of being all in. And coming out and doing what he could, and it was awesome. And he, we had a blast together. And, uh, and you know, uh, and that's an important part of what it is to love God. And if we're going to love him, we need to have our heart engaged. We need to have our hands engaged. We need to love with all of our soul. And then the third one is to love with all your mind. Love with all your mind. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. And uh, if you listen to some Christians talk, you would think that to believe God is to check your brain out at the door. Come to church on Sunday, deposit your brain in, the, in, in a box and come in and, because and, really, you know, faith is really just about the heart. It's not about the brain. And if you listen to the world, that's pretty much how they treat it, right? They treat everybody, all spirituality and stuff as, as being equal and it's all, it's all good and it's all just about the heart. It doesn't matter if it's rational because that's why, you know, Transcendental meditation or, the, or, you know, Christianity doesn't make any difference to most people because it's all, it's all just a, it's a, it's a heart thing. It's not a cerebral thing. It doesn't have anything to do with actually, it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to actually, you know, line up with anything logical. And that's the way the, Lord, the world largely treats spirituality. It doesn't matter what religion or what thing they're looking at. But, you know, the reality is, is that I believe Christianity is meant to fully engage the mind. That Jesus meant for us to love the Lord with all of our mind, not just our, our heart and our hands, but to get our brain right in there and get it involved. And I love it when I meet uh, and read of scientists who are full-on believers and yet who are, um, you know, people who are engaging the world with their mind. That their calling is to engage society with their mind, whether they're scientists or lawyers or, or doctors. Uh, it's am amazing to me. We were in... We were in, uh, uh, we went up for dinner one night, Bennett and I, up to a, a little resort north of, of, of uh, his town. Can't remember what the place is called, but anyway, Calico uh, Beach is what they call the place. And uh, so we went up there for dinner that night, largely because his wife had went to Port-au-Prince for the week with their children, because their kids go to school at a, at a special school in Port-au-Prince that features mostly English, so that his kids can learn. English so they can take over the ministry someday. And so what they've rented a small apartment in the basement in Port-au-Prince and either his wife or him spend the whole week in Port-au-Prince with their kids while the other one's back in Vignet uh, running the ministry and the school and everything there. So his wife had left on Sunday afternoon and Bennett said, uh, I think maybe we go out for dinner. <laughs> so in other words, he's not going to cook and he's not even going to think about that. So we went up to this place and we're, we're sitting down and there's a gentleman there, and I saw him in, in scrubs, right? Like medical scrubs. So I knew right away this guy's a doctor. So I just said to him, so what, what are you down here doing? And he said, well, uh, his name was Eric, Eric Purdy. And he said, well, he said, I'm actually an oral, I mean, an uh, eye surgeon. I said, oh, you are? And he said, yeah. He said, so I come down here. He said, I bring with me uh, containers with um, brand new len like lenses and all kinds of stuff. We do surgeries. Uh, uh, give people new lenses, get rid of cataracts. He said, I come down here uh, every year, and I spend about a month here, and, and, and he says, or three, three weeks, and then I also go to Honduras and do uh, part of a bigger team there. But here he said, I work at a clinic pretty much uh, by myself. So he said, well, I'll do many, several surgeries a day. And uh, so it was awesome. We had a, a lady that had a growth in her eye who was blind, but she had this large growth, and they didn't know if it was cancerous. So we were able to set up an appointment with them the next morning for this lady from Bennett's church to go and see him, and he saw her and treated her the very next day. It was just a real God thing. But to talk with him, this man who, who loves the Lord, and to hear him describe the, the, the marvel 
of, of optics, of, of the eye. And he was, he, he, I could have sat and listened to him all day as he talked about the incredible ingenuity of God and, and how every element of it works perfectly together. And we just had such an incredible conversation. And I realized this, this guy's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. He's engaging the Lord and serving the Lord with his mind. And his mind, in fact, is what enables his hands to be able to do what they do. He's able to love the Lord with his soul because he loved the Lord first with his heart, and then he loved the Lord with his mind, which enabled him to be able to love the Lord with his soul. Am I making any sense to anybody? And, and he didn't check his brain out the door. He engaged it and actually is blown away by the incredible uh, creativity of God and is finding a way to use that knowledge and that understanding to serve and to love people. Fascinating. Fascinating. So we, we exchanged information, and I'm going to be able to keep in touch with him. And just, just amazing guy. Amazing guy. And, uh, and, and, and we're called by God to, to love him with our mind, to love him with our, our mind. Uh, I found this quote by C.S. Lewis, of course. <clears throat> and he said, God wants a child's heart, but a grown-up's head. Did you get that? He wants a child's heart, but a grown-up's head. He wants us to be simple, single-minded, affectionate, and teachable, as good children are, but he also wants every bit of intelligence we have to be alert at its job and in first-class fighting trim. In other words, he want, he's saying God wants us to love him with all of our heart and to do that with the simple affection of a child, with, with just letting go and just loving on God. But he also wants us to use our mind and to be able to, to be in first-class shape to serve him because we fine-tuned the mind. We need to always be engaging the mind. Ken, I remember the first time we had Ken speak at a leader's thing here, 18 years ago, 17 years ago, over in uh, Wesley Acres, remember that? We were over there, and, and Ken said, if you don't read, can anybody finish that for me? You can't lead. If you don't read, you can't lead. I was like, such a simple statement, but... He just said, plain and simple. It's a fact. If you don't read, you can't lead. And he said, and man, he said, for too long, we've hid behind this thing. Well, I don't like to read and blah, blah, blah. He said, you know what? There's no excuse. If you've got an education, you know how to actually read, then you need to engage yourself in reading because reading is the way we, we receive new knowledge. And I realize you can watch YouTube videos and you can do that as well, but reading is the cusp of keeping the mind sharp. It's what helps us to engage our world or society. And, and literally, you know, if you study famous people they, uh, and successful people, they spend most of their day just reading. Reading everything from uh, stock market papers to scientific journals to, you know, business journals, all kinds of stuff, books, literature, everything. They're engaging the mind all the time. And the number one way to engage your mind is to read. And so, uh, you know, God wants us to love him with all of our mind as well. Uh, Jim Dennison, he, he said this, I thought it was great. He said, the Holy Spirit has a strange affinity for the trained mind. Isn't that good? The Holy Spirit has a strange affinity, a strange attraction, a strange love for the trained mind. In other words, you know, we think if we want the Holy Spirit to use us, then we just got to be free. We just got to be you know, just, just get in the Spirit, and then the Lord can use you. But, you know, uh, sometimes we need to engage the mind for the Lord to use us. Paul said to Timothy, what? Study to show yourself approved, a workman who needeth not be ashamed, rightfully able to divide the word of truth. Study to show yourself approved. Study. Everybody say Study. 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 Because the Holy Spirit has an affinity for the trained mind. The Holy Spirit has an affection, a love, a, a desire to use the trained mind. All right, let me wrap this up this morning. Bring me right back to where we began. About a month or two ago, I used this quote when I was uh, talking about the church. And it said, that, it was St. Augustine said this. He said, hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage right? Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain 
the way they are. You guys remember that quote? Two daughters, anger and courage. Anger and courage. What is Augustine saying? He's saying there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be, say it with me, there's got to be a better way. Again, there's got to be a better way. That dissatisfaction for the status quo is what drives humanity forward. And the understanding that it's all got to be done in love by engaging the heart, engaging the soul, engaging the mind, all of that is because we have a revelation from God, we engage and we love that way because we have a revelation from God that there's a better way, there's a better way, there's a better way, there's a better way. Did you know that Haiti was formed as a nation in 1804? I asked him, I said, what year was your, you know, your independence? He said, 1804. I said, so Haiti's 63 years older than Canada, right? We started our you know, our 150th. So 63 years. We started in 1867. We were made a nation, right? Am I, am I okay? I'm doing all right so far? My history is correct. So I said, we're talking 63 years older. And, uh, and I said, you've had 63 more years to get it right. 63 years of, uh, more years of not being under a monarchy or, a, uh, or under somebody else's uh, subjugation. And you've had 63 years more to be able to be able to Put into place things that will make it better. And I said, but I think this has been the problem in Haiti. For 200 plus years, they've had military coups and they've had, you know, uh, just more systemic corruption than probably any other free nation in the world. And they've had problem after problem after problem. And, and nobody has, seems to be operating with this passion that there's a better way. And so what ends up happening is that problem after problem just compounds until the whole system is, is completely broken. And now the attitude seems to be by the average person that you meet, and they'll say, this is what they say, just like they say in Africa, they say, that's Africa. They say, that's Haiti, right? You run into a problem, oh, that's Haiti. I heard that about a dozen times, just like I remember when I was in Uganda, they said, that's Africa, right? That's Haiti. And I understand there's all kinds of things about, you know, historical oppressions and all the rest of it. But at some point, you got to stop and you got to say there's a better way. There's a better way. In, in the city of Port-au-Prince, the main street has uh, three lanes going each way. Not that the lanes mean anything. Uh, but there are three lanes going each way. And they got like a cement barrier up the middle. And... Uh, but in, in, in actual fact, there's only two lanes going each way because the lane closest to the curb, about every few hundred feet, has a massive pile of garbage that you have to drive around. So nobody basically uses that lane except to pull over to the side of the road. And I mean, big piles of garbage that they'll burn right there on the street. They'll let it just decompose on the street. And it's there every, you know, you know Rod's seen it there in Haiti before. It's just, it's just everywhere. You know, we went down to the, to the beach in... Um, Lakai, so let's go down to the beach. We were looking for a place to eat, and we said, let's go see if there's any kind of restaurant down there. No, there is nothing down there. We went to the harbor, and there were pigs rummaging. There's so much garbage washing up from the ocean on the shore that the pigs are eating and, and foraging in the garbage. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying this because I'm down on Haiti. I love Haiti, and I love the Haitian people. And uh, I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, I said to Bennett, do you ever get frustrated? He said, all the time. He said, because... There's too many people that just go, case or off, off. That's Haiti. And there isn't that, that vision to say, there's got to be a better way. And the reason I love working with Bennett is because he's, con he's convinced that there's a better way. His dad had started a school in the church, and when Bennett graduated from seminary and from, bio, I mean from business school in Dallas, he came back to uh, Haiti, felt God called him to Haiti, and about 15, 20 years ago, he took over the school and he took over the church. And uh, to, when I was there, I said, I said, Bennett, what's the attendance of the school now? He said, I just talked to the headmaster this morning. He said, we have 818 students. 818 students that they feed every week, every day, 
818 students that are, are engaged from kindergarten right up to grade 12. 818 students that are taught French, English, and Creole. Uh, 1,818 students that are, have got a chance now because somebody in Haiti said there's got to be a better way. Rick, you know the building we're working on uh, three years ago? They're just finishing it off now. They're tiling it and getting it all, and it looks spectacular. It looks absolutely spectacular. I'll show you some pictures of it uh, next week. But they, you know, Bennett has has just poured his heart, soul, and mind into the whole belief that there's a better way, and I want to do it. There's a better way, and I want to do it. I believe that God is looking for the church to be the answer. God is looking for the church to be uh, solution-oriented. As Barry likes to say, uh, you're not a problem to be solved. You're an answer to be delivered, right? Uh, We're not a we're not the problem. We're the solution. Uh, one of the things that amazes me when I travel around the world, doesn't matter what country you go to, 90 plus percent of all the NGOs are what? Christian. They're not Muslim. They're not Buddhist. They're not uh, atheists. Atheists are not out there uh, working hard to feed the poor and clothe the naked. They're Christians. In fact, in all my journeys, in 20-some years or more of traveling and mission, I have met one person and had a conversation with one person, one NGO that was not a Christian. And he was uh, there to, to teach uh, reading, and he was uh, worked for an organization that was funded by uh, uh, General Electric. And so he was down there, and that was what his job was. And we had a nice discussion about faith and about God and all the rest of it. One in 20-some years. Every other NGO I run into in planes and airports and uh, all the other places, they're, they're, all, they're all believers going down to do something. The doctors, the nurses, people I bump into everywhere that I go, they're working with organizations that are Christians. Because Christians believe that there's an answer. And we're not just believe it, we're committed to making it happen. And in Canada's history, most of our founding uh, fathers were deep men of conviction and they were committed to making Canada a better place. Even our universal health care, Tommy Douglas was a man of God, and he, when he almost lost his leg, he said, no, there's got to be a better way. Got to be a better way. Do you see what I'm saying? It's got to be a better way. There's got to be, look at these with me this morning. There's got to be a faster way. There's got to be a less expensive way. There's got to be a healthier way. There's got to be a more efficient way. There's got to be a cleaner way. There's got to be a more effective way. There's got to be a more helpful way. There's got to be a more consistent way. There's got to be a more loving way. You see, that, that statement, there's got to be a better way, is what drives the heart of God. That's why he gave us the more excellent way, the better way, to love with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, with all of our affection, with our hands, and with our head. There is a better way. There is a better way. There's got to be a better way. You find that way, and you change the world. You find that way, people, you change the world. And I've had people say to me, you know, when you see all that stuff going on, and you see a country like Haiti, does it, does it get discouraging? And I asked Bennett the same question. I said, you know, when you, you see this year after year, does it get discouraging? He said, yeah, well, sometimes. But then he said, I look at where change is happening, and I realize with God, all things are possible. And so I go down there, and, and I see what, he, what Bennett's doing, what one man is doing with just some vision and passion and putting his heart into it, and I'm like, anything's possible. And that's why Bennett's uh, statement, wherever he goes, is Haiti shall rise. Haiti shall rise. And, uh, you know, where there's a passion that there's a better way, the change comes. The change comes. I was there this time, and I had uh, 3G uh, in most parts of Haiti. Uh, so I was able to do Rome like at home with Rogers. I was able to text, and people could call me, and it didn't cost anything. If I called them, I'd get ding-long char- distance charges. But uh, I could call inside of Haiti, but calling home was mucho expensive. So <clears throat> the, um, but the cool thing was to be able to, to be in communication every day, 
And so I realized, you know, things are changing in Haiti. Three years ago, forget it. Three years ago, I paid $90 to be able to send 30 text messages and get, uh, uh, no, 100 text messages and 30 minutes of talk. It cost 90 bucks. So uh, now it's, uh, it was $10 a day, so 70 bucks, and you can do whatever you want, right? Say, like, yeehaw. So <laughs> things are changing. There's not, and, but they can change, but only when someone says there's got to be a better way. So the cell phone companies go, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way to connect. And they do it, right? What they need is, is government to get in there that's as passionate for the people as they are for their own well-being and says there's a better way. And, uh, and I just want to thank everybody for praying for me this week and praying for Bennett, and, and we'll talk more about, uh, you know, what the trip looked like and what we uh, got done and all that kind of stuff next Sunday. But, but you know, behind every venture that I get involved in, uh, every place I go, uh, I look for people on the ground who are investors who are committed to this philosophy. That's why I work with Bennett. That's why I, I, I work with the Baileys, and, and, and that's why I work with the, the people that I work with in different countries like Carlos and Luisa. It's because they're people that are not satisfied with the status quo, who said there is a better way, and I want to find it, and I want to pour my life into it. That's it. It's as simple as that. And uh, if we have that conviction that there's a better way and we find it, we search it out, we can change the world. Amen? Uh, Stand with me this morning. We're going to uh, close in prayer. battery must be getting weak, is it? Um, I want you to, this week, uh, spend some time uh, looking at the things you're involved in, looking at the ministries you're involved in. You say, well, I'm not involved in any ministries. Well, that's a good place to start. Uh, you know, plug into something. Uh, you know, look at, look at the the areas where you live, look at your neighborhood, look at your schools, look at, take a look at the world around you. Really, like, take a, a purposeful look, not a glance, but a look. And, and uh, ask yourself, Lord, is there a better way that this could, could happen, that this could be done? You know, I, I, I've got the honor right now of serving on the board with Grace Inn and, uh, you know, creating a, a shelter for the homeless. And again, who's doing it? It's, it's Christians. Everybody on the board's a Christian. They love the Lord. They want to see it happen. Different churches, denominations. You know, and, and it's just like, how was the hospital built? How are the universities built in this country? How are they? they were Christians. People who were convinced there's always a better way. Maybe because they got a glimpse of God's glory and they translated that into action on earth. Maybe it's because of uh, conviction to serve. It, does, it doesn't matter what the ultimate, uh, you know, spark was for them, they all became convinced there's a better way, and they started to serve in it. And, uh, and I believe soon we're going to have an incredible place for the homeless in Belleville, because some people said, there's got to be a better way. And, you know, having people living on the, the street and freezing is not, is not a better way. Having to send people to a, another city to give them a place to stay is, is not a better way. But having something right here where we take care of our own, our own hurting, our own broken, our own destitute, is a better way, right? And uh, is the end the, the complete solution? Is it the perfect solution? Is it the final solution? Doesn't need to be. It's better than the solution we have right now. So it's good. So sometimes we're, we're looking for what's the ultimate answer, God? I, don't, I can honestly tell I don't know what the ultimate answer is. I don't know what the ultimate answer is for Haiti. It's way beyond my ability to, to step in and fix. But this I do know. I do know that there's a better way. And if we do it here, and we do it here, and we do it here, then all of that cumulative work begins to change what's taking place. Yeah. Are you hearing me? So have that conviction. Take a look around you, where you're involved, things that you're, you're whether it's your work, uh, ministries, uh, schools, whatever, and just say, Lord, is there a better way, and how, how do you want me to engage my world so that we can change the world we're living in? Amen?
Father, I just thank you today for uh, this wonderful group of people, Lord, that have listened to the ramblings of a tired man here today. And Father, uh, who really just has one thing in my heart that I know there's a better way. There's a better way for Haiti. There's a better way for Canada. And uh, there's a better way for uh, the homeless in Babel. There's a better way for people suffering uh, in our own nation just as much as other parts of the world. There's a better way. And you've called us as the church to be the ones to lead people in that direction. Um, wherever we see uh, hunger, wherever we see destitution, wherever we see need, we are called to step in and to try and meet that need. And so every time, therefore, we end up giving that cup of cold water, putting a cloak on someone's back, putting a roof over their head, we're fulfilling the mandate of, of God to Lord, love the Lord your God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. Father, I pray today that you would help us to imagine a world in which it's better than it is. And Father, to not get discouraged and certainly not to throw our hands up in the air and say, que sera, sera. whatever will be, will be. I don't believe there's any place for fatalism in the kingdom of God. It's bad theology. I realize that there's debates about whether, you know, uh, what God being sovereign means and all the rest of it, but I believe it's a sovereign partnership where he wants to work with us to get things done in his kingdom. And so, Father, there's no room for us to throw our hands up in the air and say, oh, well, this is the way it is. We instead are being called by you to go out and to make a difference, to leave a mark in the world that can't be erased, can't be taken away, can't be wiped out. Because, Father, uh, we have asked the question, is there a better way? And we've provided the answer. Father, you're the one who's going to have to speak to us. You're the one that's going to have to convince us. You're the one that's going to have to teach us and tell us and direct us. And, Father, we're going to need your help to do it. But, Father, I know there's a better way. And your people are being called to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Have an amazing, amazing week.